This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Nice to have you here. So tonight's event is in collaboration with the Berkeley Food Institute and the Goldman School of Public Policy. Tonight, I'm really pleased to introduce Secretary Karen Ross. Uh, she's been the secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture. We were talking earlier about how the federal government hasn't gotten it yet, that it really should be dealing with food as well as agriculture. Uh, and she's been that since uh, January 12, 2011. She's, uh, as secretary, focused on protecting California's agriculture um, in a time of significant budget reductions. She's initiated programs to provide greater opportunities for farmers and ranchers to engage in sustainable, environmentally sound stewardship practices with respect uh, to their production of food. And also, she's focused on water conservation, energy efficiency, nutrient management, and ecosystem services. Let's welcome Karen Ross. Well, good evening, and thank you, Dean, so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to sharing the stage in a little bit with my longtime friend, um, Dr. Ann Thrupp. I thought I would take just a few minutes to provide you a little bit of background about the Department of Food and Agriculture, and then I really want to shift into the discussion about where we're going, some of the changes that we've done, and how crucial sound public policy and those public policy signals to the private sector and to the marketplace are. So we're an agency that turns 100 years old next year. We actually have an advisory board of farmers and ranchers and consumers and environmental representatives that were created to advise the governor and the then Secretary of Agriculture at least 20 years before we created the department. It is interesting to note that part of our history is a refrain that if you've been out in the farmland very often you will hear today, and it is, created because of the overburden of regulations at that time back right around 1900. Honest, it's the truth. I can show you the USDA yearbook from 1947 that also talked about the burden of regulations on farmers and ranchers. And today, if you talk to a farmer and rancher, you would hear the same thing. And part of it's just the overwhelming paperwork when they got into the business to be outside, to farm, to nurture food, to harvest it, and send it to people to eat and enjoy so we were created to protect agriculture from invasive pests and diseases and exotic animal diseases and to create marketing opportunities through marketing orders and commissions um, and to basically be a regulatory arm of agriculture and to make sure that as, as invasives entered the state, we could protect it from being there. Fast forward to my tenure as Secretary of Agriculture and the changes that are occurring on the landscape. When you think about when I was named secretary, the farm gate value of agriculture in 2011 was less than half of what it is today. Um, the report just came out for 2017 last week, and the farm gate value of agriculture is $50.1 billion. That's without any value being added to it in the processing channels and all the things that we do to ag. That doesn't tell a very good story. It's a big number. We're the number one ag state in the country and have been by leaps and bounds for every year that we've kept those records. 
but it doesn't really talk about the diversity and the bounty of what we have. The fact that we can grow 400 different commodities because we've been blessed with our climate, a Mediterranean climate that literally allows us to grow and harvest something practically every day of the year somewhere in California. With the natural resources and the deep soils that we have, unique soils. With the four, four people, most of them were fathers at that time, but we know there were good women standing behind them, making sure that we had a water system that would be able to do what we've done in Egypt and China and for centuries um, in Rome of capturing precipitation where it falls, storing it, and then delivering it through a canal system. That's the water system that when John Kennedy came to cut the ribbon for San Luis um, Dam down in the Central Valley, his words were, I imagine flying into this valley and seeing what is possible with the addition of water, and that is turning it from brown to green. Those were the kinds of big infrastructure ideals that we had that created our infrastructure that includes our, our freeway systems, our public education system, all those kinds of things. Those things have changed, and for good reason. When you think about how we have really fostered in this country for as long as we've had a farm bill, we've been very focused on a bounty of food, an abundance of food provided as cheaply as possible to as many people as possible. And that comes with consequences, and we know that. So let me fast forward to some of the activities that I'm responsible for now at the Department of Food and Agriculture. One is we've just survived a drought. And we are keenly aware that this was a historical drought. It is calling into mind that how we have captured and moved and managed water for 70 years is not necessarily going to fit for the kinds of precipitation events that we're going to have. That we will, in fact, have more frequent and more severe droughts, but we also are now very mindful that we will have more frequent and potentially more disastrous floods and it's been a long time in this state for us to really focus on flood management. Anyone who's interested in that aspect of water management, I encourage you to look at the 2017 report from the Central Valley Flood Management Board. It truly is a remarkable document. Instead of trying to just keep our rivers in as narrow as we can, it's about understanding that land-water connection and thinking about how we can use these waters in a way that will benefit both terrestrial and fish species and all the other wildlife benefits that can happen if we just think smarter and a more integrated systems management approach between that interconnection between land and water. We also know that our cheapest storage of water that has fed people and our farmlands for all these decades has been our snowpack. It is a frightening thing to stand up as a Secretary of Agriculture, which I did in the heart of the drought, and have people tell me that we were just manipulating the water system to keep it from going to people and farms and fish. There was no snow. That was a record breaker. That will happen again. So really thinking about our economy, our environment, and the health of our people demands that we rethink how we manage our water system. It's more regional-based. It's really focusing on resiliency. 
it's really a, it's a more integrated resource management approach to doing that. We also know that because of how we've been farming for the last few decades, and I have to say to my good friends in Cooperative Extension and the UC system, on the good advice of the science we knew at the time, post-World War II, synthetic fertilizers were a wonderful thing. But now we have a nitrate problem in the Central Valley and under, underneath our feet in many of our farmlands. And what we've been able to do through our fertilizer research education program at the department is really identify best management practices and, and really focus on improved nutrient management for the best crops possible that to the extent that's feasible in today's technology prevents the movement of those nitrates beyond the root zone. That's still a scientific challenge, but it's a critical one, and I believe technology is going to help us achieve that so that we can still be productive. It's important for me when I give talks like this to put agriculture today in context. We now have 7 billion people on the globe. Everyone's seen the statistic that we will have a minimum of 9 billion people by 2050, which sounds like a long time from now, but it's not. And many people think it'll be closer to 10 billion. We are doing that today for 7 billion people where one-third of the world's croplands are degraded, where many of the farmers and many of the continents are the smallest scale acre holders, where when the, the soils are depleted and drought comes, they pick up and move, and we've left desert behind. We can't afford to keep doing that. That's why I'm excited about some of the agroforestry projects that are happening in Africa and other places. But one-third of our farmland is already degraded, and we know there's less arable land available for farming. We know that the wrong policy signals are what are contributing to climate change impacts because slash-and-burn agriculture is still acceptable on some continents, and it shouldn't be. So thinking about that, thinking about by the year 2050, when we have 9 billion people, 45% of the world's population will live in countries with chronic water shortages, that the availability of water and water quality for human use will be impacted. And by the year 2050, it's estimated that 70% of the world's population will be in intensely urbanized areas. So what is our food system? What is our agricultural system going to look like? And what are we doing today to prepare for that? I would suggest that having the kinds of conversations that we're having, the policy discussions that we're having, and that we're now seeing evidenced in the marketplace is what's our call to arms. It may be because I work for Jerry Brown, who feels this sense of urgency about climate change, but not enough people do. And climate change is what brings all of these aspects together. How we farm. In this state, agriculture accounts for 8% of the greenhouse gas emissions, but on a global basis, agriculture accounts for 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. When we think about the policy signals that we're sending on climate change here, I think it suggests a different future for how we produce food in California and can lead to examples that are real and that can be appropriately scaled for large and small farmers all around the globe. So through the renewal of the cap-and-trade program, we now have over a billion dollars that's being invested in what we call the transformation of our economy in California. 
It is improving the energy of efficiency in all of our buildings by 50%. It is reducing our reliance on fossil fuel petroleum for transportation by 50%. It is increasing the use of what we have in a more efficient way. It is diverting 75% of the organic waste from landfills into compost or other supplements for soils that will make a big difference. These are policy signals that set things up for us in farming and in the business sector and how we live our lives to think differently about how we use energy and how it's being sourced, that we're requiring 50% of that portfolio to be a renewable source now, climbing potentially to 100%. It's thinking about the greenhouse gas emissions that come from inefficient nutrient management and what does that mean? So how do we improve our nutrient management to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and protect water quality and the drinking water of all of our neighbors? It's thinking about what can we be doing on the farms with what we used to call waste or pollution. I just call it the other byproducts of a cow besides milk. And it's real because somebody in Sacramento has to be in the room in a very serious policy discussion talking about cow poop. How do we turn that into energy? And so we are now put investing the last two years over $90 million a year and working with dairy farmers and developers for dairy digesters with new most efficient technology in the engines for electricity production. And the next big chapter on this is renewable compressed natural gas, putting it into the pipeline to heat homes and to fuel vehicles. We can make a significant difference in the Central Valley's air quality if all the trucks that went up and down I-5 and I-99 we're using this instead of a fossil fuel-based, petroleum-based product. So that's a huge investment that we're making because we want to reduce methane emissions from dairies and landfills by 40% over the next decade. That's a very aggressive public policy goal, but dairy digesters are one piece of that. We're also investing for those farms where dairy digester does not make sense for alternative manure management practices. And I'm leading up. It's not because you're going to dinner and I'm trying to discourage your appetite. I'm just saying we tend to treat everything as a wasteful end product of our consumption, and we need to refocus on how we convert that to useful products. And that can be converted through separation products to being that, that replacement for synthetic nitrogen. We can do this, and we're funding those projects today up and down the state of California. And it all leads to where my passion is these days, to healthy soils. We've launched, finally, after two years of talking about it in Sacramento, we stood up the program last year for Healthy Soils, an incentive program to partner with farmers and ranchers to do things to sequester carbon. And that, I would suggest, because of the climate strategy in Sacramento, where we have added as one of our strategies managing natural working landscapes to sequester carbon is a remarkable difference from what policies are in other places around the world. The way we manage our lands and care for our lands can actually help mitigate climate change. There are a few other ways for us other than how we manage our forests and prevent forest fires and manage our lands and our working landscapes, including wetlands, 
to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and sequester carbon. We can be part of the solution. Going back to my first comments about instead of being 8% of this state's greenhouse gas emissions, 30% of greenhouse gas emissions globally, what if we were working with every farm and ranch <clears throat> and we were avoiding taking out forests but really looking at how we can help those small-scale farmers grow food that they need for their family, especially when we think that of the billion people today who are food insecure, the vast majority are small, rural farm families. We have a responsibility. We have the opportunity to take what we learn in a state like California with the best minds, the best public policy signals, the incentive dollars to really prove that it can work. We have this opportunity, and that's why I'm excited to have the chance tonight to talk to all of you. It starts with the right public policy signals. We're doing it on climate. Think about the public policy signal that we're sending on immigration. That's the wrong public policy signal. Think about the public policy signal we send on use it, dispose of it, and send it to a landfill. That's the wrong public policy signal. But all of us working together can take those public policy signals and put them to work in our daily life. I think there has never been a better time to be in agriculture. To do what we need to do requires even more efficiency than we already have. It requires changing faster than we already have. It demands that we have partnerships. And we also need the marketplace through procurement as well as our purchasing as individual consumers to send the signals that reward that kind of behavior. And in fact, I would suggest if we can create public benefits on the way we change our management practices on the land, we're sharing that responsibility with the farmers. They need to stay in business. They also need people to buy their product. So I think that suggests, and I know Anne's been talking about this for a long time, we need to really think about our food and the true value of food and what it brings to us. What it brings to us as individuals when we really think about nutrition, the best nutrition that makes our minds and our bodies work better than they, than they possibly can, that avoid chronic health diseases and the kinds of illnesses that cost this country a lot of money, when we think about making sure that every child who goes to school has adequate food so that they become the best person they can be because they're not focused on how hungry I am, but they're listening and they're learning and they're, they're being their potential. Food is the connector. It's our connector to build local community, but I would suggest if we wanted to bring civility back into the discussions in the public policy arena, I think we should start with food. I think if we should start with food and how it's grown today and how it can be changed without making anybody the bad person here. It's about we know so much more today than we did. We've learned from the way we incentivized farming practices after the World War II. We have an opportunity through cooperative extension, technical assistance, public incentive programs to make transformational change happen but it all starts with that public policy signal. I would suggest that California is growing to standards that are higher than any other farming community here in the nation as well as around the globe because of public policy that's been developed here. 
We're the number one ag state. We're the most populated state. We have a very strong environmental ethic that drives a lot of public policy. And so we now are the only state where we are moving to $15 an hour for all workers, including our farm workers. We are a state. We were one of the few states that paid overtime to our farm workers, and it was the most generous overtime before the change three years ago that eliminated um, the 10-hour the day or the 60-hour work week and replaced it with the same 40-hour work week, which is a challenge to manage in the fields, but that's going to drive more technology into the fields. And I would suggest the kinds of jobs that we're creating will be different jobs, and they're going to require that we accompany that technology with workforce training, that the technology won't take care of itself. The first thing a farmer's going to ask you is, if I take this on, what's the maintenance going to be like, and will I be able to fix it myself? These are important issues. Who's going to be the programmer that's running the entire irrigation system from their handheld in the office or in the pickup truck on the way into town for a meeting about water? When you think about what's possible in agriculture, it can be frightening to those who are the practitioners today, but I think it's an exciting step in our future. Now, I'm going to be the first one to say I'm not sure that um, cultured in the lab food products build community the same way that comes from the land. I believe there is something that's extraordinary about connecting with the land and knowing that food comes from that. But we also know from the nutrition needs of billions of people, we're going to need a checklist that says all of the above is what we need to deploy to make sure that people can live healthy lifestyles and productive lifestyles and achieve their potential. I've wandered on long enough. I talked about labor. I talked about water. talked about land and the connection of land. I especially talked about climate. And now I'm hoping there's a lot of questions here that you can grill me, criticize me, and send me home with lots of great ideas. Um, thank you for being here tonight, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, I want to uh, introduce uh, our interlocutor tonight. Um, it's uh, uh, Anthrop. Anthrop is the executive director of the Berkeley Food Institute. Uh, she's got an extraordinary background in the area, 25 years uh, working on agricultural development, agroecology, food issues through research. She has 70 publications on these various topics. She served on two uh, National Academy of Sciences committees. She's also been on the Scientific Advisory Committee uh, Advisory Board for the Department of Food and Agriculture, the California Department of Food and Agriculture. So she's somebody who really understands this area, both from the research side, but she's also been very involved in working on the practical side uh, and having worked uh, on uh, actually agroecology uh, and agro agricultural projects in the private sector. Uh, so she brings an extraordinary uh, background to what we're doing. I'm hoping tonight we can get into the following mega issue, which at least to me is the big issue in this arena, which is we're trying to transform a whole system which has a lot of capital invested in old ways of doing things. And trying to send the right public policy signals when you actually have to come up over some big humps and make people realize that they don't have to do it the old way, they can do it a new way, is very difficult. And I hope that some of the questions and some of the discussion we have actually deal with that uh, issue so that we can understand better how we can really get to where we want to go when it does require this climbing a big mountain. Yeah. 
Thank you so much okay. for Thanks. a Thanks. great talk, Thanks. and I leave it to Anthrop. Anthrop. Great. <laughs> thank you so much, Dean Brady, and I also want to thank Karen for her tremendous, Secretary Ross, sorry, <laughs> um, for your wonderful comments and really interesting introduction. Uh, it really is my honor and my privilege to be able to, um, to do this, uh, have this conversation with, with Secretary Ross. So, um, yes, and I think it would be great to address that huge question. That, that, oh, the uh, easy did, one first. <laughs> I told you to give me the easy question. <laughs> so we can do that. I also, we have a whole lot of really interesting questions. Great. So, but why don't we start off with, with Dean Brady's big picture question, and then I'll get to some other more specifics. So if it were easy, it would be done by now. And I think the Farm Bill um, is, is a, a key piece of that and the way that it has traditionally um, been the purview of six commodity crops that had, you know, Title I and everything was built around that and people thought ag was just those six crops in the Midwest and the Southeast. Um, we've seen some changes. They are hard to come by. Um, and so there, the change that has happened um, and I think in particular around the nutrition title, um, that has been a coalition that was, that was built over 25 years ago when, when those six commodity program crops realized that they didn't have all the votes they were going to need in a fast-changing demographics of the country that they needed to have an urban-rural coalition. And it's been built around the nutrition title, most specifically SNAP, which, of course, this current administration is proposing some pretty significant changes in that. Um, and so uh, people, when they make that one leap like that, then they just want to stay there because they're afraid. You know, it's all about diminishing resources if I open it up and share it with more. Um, but there have been some other really positive incentive programs for nutrition in la local neighborhoods, and they've supported the efforts for more direct-to-consumer kinds of things and urban farming programs. But it's going to take um, more partnerships at that national level um, to, to outweigh the balance of that still very strong rural urban vote that as long as SNAP's okay on the urban member, I'll give you my, my farm vote on the title. So a lot of it is just pure politics. It's thinking creatively. I think we also have had some really tremendous successes on the environmental title where we've brought ag and environmental organizations together on that. But that's not the one that gets the most attention. It's SNAP and the, the program crops in Title I. So those are the two to focus on how do we reshuffle some of those things. I've always felt that the healthcare sector is missing in the discussion in the Farm Bill. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at that. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. So maybe I'll start off, there's a cluster of questions here that relate to a question that I'd also like to pose, which really uh, to ask you to comment a little more on the labor yes. issues mm -hmm. and also related to immigration mm -hmm. policy issues. And um, in particular, um, I'm just wondering what you're seeing in terms of the overall trends, the prospects for change, uh, what kind of policy signals are needed to ensure that farm workers are, are you know, especially immigrant communities, yeah. have, have fair labor and dignity. I know you talked about the, the uh, policies that California has that actually are, are more yeah. advanced than but, other, but other areas. That's obviously overshadowed by our federal policy, our immigration policy, and and the last decade, actually, of doing stronger enforcement, thinking that that would help bring people to the table for a compromise on long-term immigration reform. Um, I've worked on this immigration reform for almost 20 years. And in fact, over a decade ago, the UFW, the faith community, and the agricultural community 
came together. Agriculture was the first part of the economy that stepped up 12 years ago and, and acknowledged we don't have all legal workers. It took a while for people to acknowledge that publicly for a lot of reasons. But what they were starting to see on enforcement in their communities of people being afraid to go out or ice raids or whatever is happening, this has been happening, but it was spotted as not as focused and, and um, or as prevalent as then as it was now. Really, that's a coalition that is still advocating immigration reform that would include um, one aspect to allow for people who wanted to only come for 10 months out of the year and go back home to be able to do that. But it's, it's a comprehensive package that those people have worked on. They're still sticking together on that. Um, what it is doing now, we have what we say officially are 475,000 full-time equivalent jobs on farms, just doing the, the labor on farms. Um, if you looked at the real numbers, because of how many of those are part-time jobs or seasonal jobs, it probably, you could say there's 800,000 jobs, but it's probably 475,000 people. And there are several things that have happened. The difficulty of crossing the border means there's less people that are here. Uh, the people who are here um, now with the economy heating up, even at $15 an hour, if they can go get an inside job, or a labor construction job that's $30 an hour, that's taking some of that. Um, so it's driving the acceleration of investment in um, automation wherever it's possible. There have been, there's been work on robotic um, pruners, and we've had uh, automatic harvesting in a number of our, even the most fragile fruits, but we're still not there for cherries or berries. Well, those are really challenging. But in wine grapes, for example, and there's more acceptance of that. Um, and right now, the, all the major ag organizations are spending big time, and anybody who's doing some work in that regard, they want to meet with them and have them understand what the practical challenges are, what it would take to have more robotic, more automation, more precise everything that would then free up the need for people doing that kind of work to be able to be the machine operators and the programmers or being trained to do, you know, bug counts to avoid pesticide use. So that's where the that's where the trend is going. It's significant. But if we just invest in that without also investing in workforce development, career technical education is one way as a ladder up in agriculture. And and restaurants are doing the same thing. Restaurants, as you know, are now doing much more work with robotics in the kitchen than anybody ever thought they would. All the, you know, go here and order it. But it's pretty remarkable. I would love, and maybe people here have been, I would love to go to the McDonald's Innovation Center and see what kind of machines they're deploying right now because they're all in need of it. And again, I come back, I don't mean to be an elitist, but there's something about preparing food and sharing it that I just hate to get completely away from that. But these are the realities of, of what's happening with the labor force right now. And families are being split up, and that's that the farmers in their local communities see that happening in their churches, in their schools, with their kids' little league teams. Um, they, they want immigration reform, and they have been advocating it very publicly. Thank you for those comments. Yeah, and actually related to the, 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 that very issue that you mentioned, farming families, mm -hmm. there are a couple questions here, and this pertains to some of the questions I also had. Yeah. 
about um, uh, socially disadvantaged families yes. and families that suffer from food insecurity. As you know, one of the t- incredible ironies in our state yes. is that the area of most wealth and revenues, as you, as you mentioned, uh, from agriculture yeah. come from the Central Valley. At the yes. same time, that's an area of tremendous poverty. Yes. And um, many small farmers who aspire to right. advance their farming right. uh, uh, businesses but often right. struggle in the face of consolidation. Right. So if you might want to comment a little about what is can yeah. CD, CDFA and others do yeah. something about those issues and how you're addressing yeah. so, the direct marketing? You know, some, some of this, uh, what I, I did in my first year with Secretary Diana Dooley, who's now the governor's chief of staff, she was the Health and Human Services Secretary as we convened uh, a meeting of regional food policy councils to really create more of a statewide um, focus on that to look at what we could do to address food insecurity as well as the food system, the food system in all these communities, which is what are the barriers to having more healthy food available, affordable, the corner stores, and now thanks to Assemblyman um, Ting, we have an incentive program of $5 million. It's a pilot to get refrigeration units into the local stores where people can go, understanding that there's still transportation issues in the valley that preclude people from getting to decent shopping um, kinds of things. Um, And not that it's an answer, but making sure we're partnered with our food banks and really improving the quality and the nutritional aspect of food that's being offered through our food banks with with donations that come from farmers because at any time there's a surplus of something because of markets or weather, making sure that's getting to all of our people. Um, but part of, the, part of the problem is a lot of the farm jobs in these communities are part-time and seasonal, and that doesn't generate enough um, to move up. So it's, it's like treating the whole system and, and, and thinking about how do we create alternative um, work schedules, which many of the farmers have done nowadays of being able to create year-round employment, and that's been one of their goals, is to have year-round employment to improve that. There's no easy answer on that one. Well, and related to that, it seems like um, um, one of the things that's happened under your, um, your uh, time being at CDFA is there's been the creation of the Farmer Equity Act. And also, there's been an integration more of environmental justice and food justice issues into your agenda and to the policy work that you're doing. So, and, and similarly, there's been efforts to develop more direct marketing opportunities mm-hmm. through your Farm to Fork yes. program. And I wonder if you might comment on those specific programs and whether you have any sort of evaluation about whether that's actually... Well, I know Farmer Equity Act is very new, so... Yeah, probably, it's very, it's, but maybe you could comment so about new. what's it happening. It passed last year, and we just got the budget authority to retain the first-ever Farmer Equity Outreach position. Yeah, and so that, that, person, that person will be joining our staff um, in two weeks, so it will be announced at that time. But this is really to focus on making sure that all those small, um, all the farmers we have in this state where English is not their first language, that they know about USDA programs and any programs that we have at CDFA to assist them, whether they're incentive programs that we're helping to get them to like the Small Farms Conference, um, the Latino Farmers Conference, and those kinds of programs for them to learn about how to do business planning. You know, these conferences and programs like ALBA um, really help them develop business plans, understand the marketing, really evaluating, because a lot of our new farmers that are small scale are going to farmer's markets, and everybody wants to have farmer's markets, and we've had a burst of growth in farmer's markets. 
but they're also, they're at home, they need to do the farming, they need to harvest it, they need to drive and get it to wherever it's going, and that costs gas. How do you evaluate which farmer's markets are really bringing you a, enough of a profit so that it justifies focusing on that farmer's market and not just every farmer's market because there's one there, and you maybe people don't, you know, they want to negotiate price or something with you. So really, how do we make sure that we are doing our outreach to bring all those kinds of farmers to the table to better understand what's there to support them, how they can tap into selling to schools. Nutrition directors and farmers should be best friends, but farmers need the policy signal or the, I need X number of tons of oranges at what time of the year, really understanding how we can make contracts in place so that they can plant for it and deliver it when the students are in school and they want to offer fresher, better foods. So it's like all those kinds of things, and that's what our farm to, to fork office. It was a gift from the legislature without any money, so <laughs> we get a lot of those kinds of gifts from the legislature. But really, how do we, and we've taken over the farm to school network to really, I, I think farmers of all sizes are missing the boat by not looking at more institutional buying and how do we in, improve those opportunities for all the health systems and local governments and big business employers and schools in particular to source locally. And, and then maybe we could get some long-term contracts that would really make this work better and not have as much food waste. That's my dream. <laughs> I'm sure somebody here will work on it and say, that was Susie. <laughs> so there are lots of other great questions, and thank you all for contributing these. We're not going to be able to get to yeah. all of them. Um, but... Um, one of the things that, of course, you've faced a lot of challenges during the time that you've been uh, at CDFA. Um, you already alluded to the drought and, uh, of course, huge labor issues, uh, challenges of immigration. One of the things that also comes up, it comes into play and has been for so many years is the, the perception and the actuality of conflict between environmental interests and agriculture interests. Um, similarly, there's often perceived large-scale versus small-scale. And I wonder if you might want to con comment on the first element, and we'll get to the second one. But in particular, um, um, as you know, this is a, an issue that I'm passionate about just because I've been able to see environmental and agriculture people work together yes. on common interests. Yes. But yet there still is inevitably a kind of perception that often environment is against agriculture and vice versa. So I was wondering if you could comment on how yeah. you at CDFA have been able to reconcile the interests of agriculture, environmentalists, and similarly bringing environmentalists to the table to understand agriculture and vice versa. And I know that's something we did quite effectively in the California Sustainable Wine Growing right. Alliance to find these sort of win-win opportunities, but there's going to be trade-offs. So, yeah. yeah, so um, a friend of mine, very wise, a long time ago when I was like, I was horrified at the bad headlines that grape growers were getting at the, at the height of our growth in the state. And it's like, how can you build relationships battling who gets the sexiest headline about how bad the other side is? And so my friend, Anthrop, at the time said, well, you know, collaboration, it's tedious and it's hard work, but the, the dividends that come from investing in collaboration and understanding each point of view and focusing on what you have in common more than what's driving you apart, and building trust. And it, it, is, it should be easier than it is, but it, but it isn't, and partly because we now also add social media to how we can have battles like this and not really connect with each other as a, another human being. So what I have found, especially in the last decade, is not just the farmers and their sons and daughters who are coming to the business and going, 
this doesn't make sense to me. There's got to be a better way of us getting through this. And very, very renowned and, and tremendous environmental organizations who have said, we've been putting money into environmental causes forever, and we're not getting the outcomes that we think our money should have been getting for us. So they've built this trust. They've taken on small projects. They've accomplished success together, and they've built trust. And so you start with one project at a time where you can see a win-win for everybody, and, and you do it as a pilot or a demonstration, and that leads to the next one and the next one. But it starts with first the willingness that I have something that I think could be done better, and I want to hear your perspective of what it is that I'm not doing right or what you would like to see me do, and then I'll explain to you what my challenges are to that. And so I've seen that especially, and I'll just use the rice growers in the Sacramento Valley with the partnerships they've got with Audubon and Ducks Unlimited, Environmental Defense, um, the Nature Conservancy, where because of our loss of wetlands, they use their rice fields in the wintertime. They had a problem. They phased out burning, but they have this great nutrition source for birds. Well, guess what the farmers in the Sacramento Valley want to do today? They want to do for fish what they did for birds. If you've not gone up to do bird watching north of Sacramento, it's amazing. It's the biggest bird hotel ever for three or four months. And this is what the farmers, now that we're discovering that one of the aspects of, of not having a more robust salmon population is there's not nutrition. The rice farmers have it. How do we cut the channels to get these little salmonoids to have good nutrition? Those projects have happened in some parts of the state more than others, but they are also happening in the Central Valley. And, and part of it is generational change. You know, we all got married to our causes, and, and people on the farm feel like nobody understands me, and I'm doing all this, and if you think it's so easy to farm, come farm. Well, that doesn't open up conversation with, like, why are fish important to you? Because I love fish, too. So I'm really sad right now because it looks like we're entering World War III on fish versus farms. And it's like, no, everybody needs water. All living things need water. Let's work together on this. But it's very emotional right now. And people feel threatened. They feel their livelihood is threatened. Yeah. Well, speaking of water, there were a couple <laughs> questions on water. Well, the sustainable <laughs> Management Act. They didn't talk about right. that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you could comment on that, right. So can you comment about about the future of water situation. You did a bit, but maybe elaborate a little more. And particularly, um, you know, does it make sense to limit water on certain types of crops, to think about diversification of crops that are less water using? Similarly, um, you know, is the Delta Water Tunnel going to really solve the issues? Um, you know, how, to, I mean, of yeah. course this so is huge. There, there's, there's a lot of issues there. And the first thing I'll do is just um, repeat Jerry Brown in the heart of the drought when he said, why do you want Sacramento to be the crop police? Because market signals are what are causing the change. Um, when I moved to the state 30 years ago, we were in a very severe drought, 89, 90, 91. And everyone at that time shook their fingers at the farmers and said, you need to plant better, higher value crops that use less water. So guess what? At that time, we had 1.4 million acres of cotton in the state. Last year, we had less than 300,000 acres of cotton in the state, but we had 1.4 million acres of almonds in the state. But that's market signals. So what you have are many, many individual entrepreneurs looking at markets, looking at globally and locally, looking at best 
investment of their water dollar for the most economic return for them to put back into their businesses and their community. And so you have, you know, 6,500 individuals making very rational business decisions that collectively could have an impact. Well, to their credit, the Almond Board of California right now has the most aggressive strategic plan and sustainability platform of all crops because I've, I've chastised them. Being the largest crop in the state brings huge responsibility, and you cannot just focus on almonds. Mm -hmm. And they are doing some remarkable work, including investing for the best agronomic practices for the 22nd century. So they're responding to that, and people are doing that. So there's several things going on. One, we know we're not going to have precipitation in the places it's always been. Then this demands that we do more regional scale projects, storage and conveyance. Um, it demands that we use every molecule of water, not just once, but recycling even more. I mean, I took a Climate Smart delegation to Israel, and I'm still blown away that 85% of the water is recycled, desal, whatever it might be. We need to really keep looking at the technology to make sure it's affordable and that we're doing that for all the needs that we possibly can. Um, the State Water Board right now is working on repotable water so that we're taking wastewater and treating it just like Orange County does already. Remarkable opportunities. Um, and our healthy soils is a contributor to this. The water holding capacity by building organic matter in our soil, having carbon in our soils, that can give us a significant drought tolerance strategy as well as helping us on climate. So it's, it's like our California Water Action Plan. It's not just one thing, it's all of the above. We still have a significant problem though, that even with climate change, two-thirds of our precipitation events will happen north of Sacramento. And two-thirds of our population and water use is south of the Delta. So there still is the challenge of of moving water, but how do we decrease the over-reliance on it so that we can manage it for our ecosystems? And I'm really proud that in this administration, we have already restored more habitat in the Delta than the previous 20 years of work has accomplished. And it's built on partnerships, and it's partnering with landowners in addition to what we're doing on public lands. So to just focus on the, the, the conveyance Without that restoration means we won't be successful. It has to move forward together, and I hope that the next governor will be as committed to that. Yeah, thank you for those comments. That's great. Oh, and I didn't mention the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is a real game changer. Mm -hmm. As much as it is about not over-pumping our aquifers and restoring them to balance over the next decade or so, it's also a land use tool. Everybody's focused on it as a water public policy program, but if you look at the land use, land use by counties and cities of where their growth is going to be or not, um, what farmers will plant or not, we've hardened our water demand because of our permanent crops. That's going to change, but we need that diversity in our landscape for, for our environment. So it, it's, going to, it's very demanding new law, and it's got a lot of people at the table so far, they're, they're staying in it. It could easily get blown up with people deciding to litigate instead. Mm -hmm. But people of goodwill are at the table working out their, their local sustainability plan, which is going to have some demand changes in it. It's going to require local government to think about their land use differently. And all of it's driving climate resiliency planning.
Great, thank you. And actually, we have some really wonderful uh, faculty members and students working on some of these very issues yes. here. Well, I, I know. Water market. I didn't even mention yeah. water markets, and there's some really great work coming off of this campus. Yeah. And on the on the um, relationship between carbon sequestration yeah. and so healthy soils and water. And I, I know Dennis Baldocki is also doing a lot of work. Right. He's in our audience. Right. Tim Bowles. Um, I see other folks, but sorry if I haven't called you all. And also, really, an interesting work on diversified farming systems yes. and the importance for resilience. Yes. So, some exciting work going on. Yeah. And since I mentioned folks here in, in, yeah. our, in the room, I, how about those that are students in food and ag policy or really interested in food and agriculture? Do you want to raise your hands? Thank Great. You. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, what we I talk about pollinators. That's another one that we do work on. But I just wanted to, because you had alluded to um, the importance of students um, in the, this work and faculty, um, wonder what if you might be able to provide any um, tips or insight or you know, you talked about how it's a great time to be in agriculture. People aspire to be in agriculture. Some want to be farmers, other in ag policy. What would you say to folks now who are studying, interested in agriculture? Um, what are the prospects for you know, future so, jobs and yeah, you know, that kind of thing? There are so many openings going vacant now. Um, some of them are very technical. They can be in local and state government as well as at USDA because we have that aging tsunami that's creating openings. Many of them are strong in the sciences. Many of them are in the policy arena, um, but also in the business in the business sector. Um, I'm most interested personally in the NGO sector and this opportunity to really help feed all people and being able to take sustainable systems to every continent. Huge demand for that and support for that. The philanthropic community is much more active in funding some of these efforts. And, and many of the organizations that even five years ago didn't have someone on staff for sustainable ag do now. So it's, it's a pretty endless set of possibilities. It's like, what's your passion? Um, take advantage of every opportunity for an internship that you can find. Um, and I've really been encouraging the farm and ranch community and our agribusiness sector to open up to even more interns than they already do. Um, it's unbelievable, the opportunities. I, they're at every level um, in every aspect and things you wouldn't even think about, whether it's on the nutrition side, whether it's on even in, in human resources, working with people to have great job skills and be safe and the language skills that are necessary for all those things in marketing locally as well as um, on the global. And we didn't talk about trade policy tonight either, but there isn't really a policy right now, so I will leave it at that. So it's like there's, it's, it's, it's un unbelievable, including being a part of teaching young people about food and where it comes from, that ag literacy when we think about who our voters are, who's making policy decisions in Sacramento, many are disconnected from two or three generations of somebody in the family that knows. So being able to, to walk a field with a farmer or go out and drive over the rangeland with a farmer and just hear where they're coming from and take that knowledge with you is also instrumental in whatever you might end up doing. Great, and along that line, I make, might make a plug for the Berkeley Food Institute yes. that we feel really fortunate that we're able to offer some um, internship opportunities, yep. uh, job opportunities, and we post those. We also serve as a clearinghouse for people who are interested in posting um, opportunities for, for students. So um, we have a student opportunities bulletin. So for those of you who aren't signed up for that, that's, that's an opportunity we for that. We had two interns this summer who were just focused on helping us put together our Climate Smart 
ag event um, that will be next week leading up to the Global Summit. So it was very fun to have them. And we have a student right now who's collaborating with uh, your Healthy Soils Initiative to do okay. some interviews of the farmers involved. Okay. So that's, that's great. great. Yeah. Cool. So maybe I might ask one provocative question and then one to finish. <laughs> um, but uh, so what about agribusiness? Um, mm -hmm. Dean Brady mentioned at the beginning that there's entrenched systems and structures in place which mm -hmm. are often challenging to move forward to some of these kinds of um, innovations and changes yeah. that you've been advocating and yeah. supporting through many of the, the great policies and programs that you've developed. But um, so do you have a mixture of reactions by agribusinesses and yeah. large farmers? Are some really get on board? Others are, are resisting? You know, what's the kind of landscape yeah, so of reactions? It's, it's as diverse as our farmers. You know, we have a lot of farmers. The vast majority of our farmers around the state are at least four or five generations, and so they've all grown larger because if you have more family members that want to come back to the farm, you need to grow larger or vertically integrate. And so they tend to have somebody in the family is in charge of leading our efforts on this or being involved in this or whatever it might be. So the, the response is very different, but um, a lot of it as farmers, the farmers in this state are very innovative because they haven't been supported by Title I in the Farm Bill. They're very market-driven. They've had the harsh lessons of there wasn't a market for that, so I'm going to pull it. So they're, they're very open to innovation. But they take on a lot of risk, and so they want to see good data. So farmers, when we take out a new incentive program, you know, a lot of the big guys, they're going to look for some data, usually from cooperative extension. They want to see objective third-party data. Um, and if it looks good, they're going to go put, you know, a few hundred acres into something or 50 acres just to get their own data. And so they're open to it, and they're just going to go off and do it because they start to see the... Remember we used to talk in sustainable wine growing? If you can't make the business case to a farmer, it's going to be hard to get him to do it just because, oh, this feels really good. I'm spending money on something that doesn't bring money back. Sorry, they're in business. That's what it is. So they, they start to see the business case that gets built for it, and they're just going to go off and do it. So they're not going to be a part of our incentive programs, and we don't get to measure that. But I would say um, what we've seen across the vast number of organizations that support them, they are getting this. They also are getting very strong signals from the, the next step in the food chain that's doing the purchasing. Even the largest scale buyers, and believe it or not, Walmart was one of the early ones driving some of this change. When they did their first life cycle analysis on an ag product, and it was milk, that sent a signal to the U.S. dairy sector. So it's coming at them from several different ways. And if, if they're ignoring the signals from consumers today and the millennials and Gen Z that follows them with, just look on campus at the food that's being prepared, how it's being served, where it's grown. There's, if they're not paying attention to those signals, they're not going to be in business very long. I would also say if you look at the biggest brand names that we all grew up with, the multinationals, I don't want to throw names around carelessly, but I'll just use as examples. Let's just say Campbell's, which is going through a lot of turmoil right now, General Mills, Kellogg. Their, their change is coming faster by acquiring the new startups because they know that's what they need to do. They can't figure out how to turn the ship fast enough. Mm -hmm. Look at Tyson's when they announced a huge investment in um, cultured meat products in addition to what they're doing and plant-based proteins. So it's coming from so many ways. I don't think we would have gotten the Paris Accord without the business community being there because they have to worry about sustainable sourcing. 
Great comments, and I was going to ask about the issue of market signals and market changes and the demand that people, consumers, all all of you in this room. We all get to vote, but we also get to use our spending dollars. Right. (laughs) And related to that, there's also increasing interest on the part of of consumers and of um, uh, food businesses in in labor, a fair labor issue. So that's another element, like these certification programs that have developed to demand those kinds of changes. So I think that's exciting trend. Yeah. So maybe I'll end, and there's so many more things to to ask but um, and to talk about, but um, I'd like to ask you about what, what gives you, I was going to say what keeps you up at night, what gives stress, um, <laughs> that, more challenges that, you, that are, are facing for the future, but more, I think more exciting is what gives you hope for the future in oh, agriculture. That's the easiest thing. I tell everybody, <laughs> if I have a chance to meet with students, um, Students of all ages, but especially the students I've met in colleges and universities across the state, is like, I, I tell everyone, rest assured, the world is in good hands. You can sleep good tonight. I mean, I am so blown away um, by how smart um, the students are and how caring they are um, and how passionate they are about the big picture and connecting it to where they want to spend their lifetime. Um, truly, it's that gener- the, the next generation. Hopefully, each of us in our generation made a contribution for the better, but I'm especially excited about what I see throughout the campuses and the numbers of people who are very much a part of this particular discussion. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And we also see a huge diversity, not only in the oh, disciplines, but diversity from yes. all walks of life, and yeah. continuing to support right. that is really important. Right. So, yeah. so thank you so, so much. Good. Secretary Ross, for your great conversation. So I just want to do final thank yous. Thank you to the Berkeley Food Institute. Uh, Thank you to the Food and Agricultural Policy Group uh, for your help. Um, Thank you uh, to Ann Thrupp for being a wonderful moderator and asking great questions. And, of course, thank you to Secretary Karen Ross of the California Food and Agricultural Department. Thank you. Thank you.